Chapter 12 The Spying of Tyler Mr. Burton was, like many other men, accustomed to modern business methods. He believed there was always an indirect way to accomplish whatever he desired. Also, like many others who had little or no use for such a contrivance, he owned a motor car. His chauffeur was a little, wizened-featured man named Totham Tyler, familiarly called Tot by his chums. A chauffeur who knew automobiles backwards and forwards, and might have progressed beyond his present station had he not been recognized as so tricky that no one had any confidence in him. About two weeks after Orissa left the office, Mr. Burton said to this man one morning, Tyler, would you like to do a little detective work? Anything to oblige, sir? Answered Totham, pricking up his ears. Have you ever met a fellow round the town named Kane? Steve Kane, sir. Oh, yes. He used to be foreman of Cunningham's repair shop. Quit there some time ago, I believe. Clever fellow, sir, this Kane. Yes, he has invented a new sort of aeroplane. Tyler whistled reflectively. All motor car people have a penchant for flying, as Mr. Cumberford would have said. It interested them. Kane is keeping the matter a secret, continued Mr. Burton, and I'm curious to know what he's up to. Find out, Tyler, and let me know. Very good, sir. Where's he working? At home. He lives out Beverly Way. Take a Beverly car and get off at Sandringham Avenue. Walk north up the lane to the first bungalow. Ever been there, sir? No, but Kane's sister has described the place to me. When you get there, try to hire out as an assistant. But in any case, keep your eyes open and observe everything in sight. I'll pay you extra for this work, according to the value of the information you obtain. I understand, sir, answered Tyler, wrinkling his leathery face into a shrewd smile. I'll know how to work a game of that sort, believe me, sir. In pursuance of this mission, the little chauffeur came to the Kane residence that very afternoon. As he approached the bungalow, he heard the sound of pounding upon metal coming from the canvas-covered hangar. Otherwise, the country lay peacefully, sunning itself. An automobile stood in the lane. On the front porch, a woman sat knitting, but raised her head at the sound of footsteps. Tyler touched his cap, but there was no response. Looking at her closely, he saw the woman was blind, so he passed her stealthily and tiptoed up the narrow path toward the hangar. The top canvas had been drawn back on wires to admit the air, but the entrance was closed by curtains. Tyler listened to the hammering a moment, and, summoning up his native audacity to his aid, boldly parted the curtains and entered. Hello, Kane, he called then paused and took in the scene before him at a glance. Stephen was at the bench, pounding into shape an aluminum propeller blade. A tall man with a drooping mustache stood nearby, watching him. A young girl was busily sewing strips of canvas. On its rack lay a huge flying machine. Its planes spread, the motors in place, the running gear complete, seemingly almost ready for action. But Tyler was not the only one with eyes. 
Cain paused with uplifted hammer and regarded the intruder with a frown of annoyance. Orissa stared in startled surprise. The tall man's spectacles glittered maliciously. Burton's chauffeur, he muttered. I remember him. Swiftly his long arms shot out and seized Tyler's shoulder and whirled him around. The square toe of a heavy shoe caught the little man unprepared and sent him flying through the entrance, where he sprawled full length upon the ground. In an instant he was up, snarling with rage. The curtains were closed, and before them stood his assailant, calmly lighting a cigarette. Mr. Cumberford, sir, gasped Tyler. You shall smart for this. It's actionable, sir. It's, it's assault and battery. That's what it is. Do you want any more? asked the man coolly. Not today, thank you. This'll cost you plenty. Then go back to Burton and tell him we know his game. You're trespassing, sir. I could wring your neck. Perhaps I will, and the law would uphold me. If you want to escape alive, make tracks. Tot Tyler took the hint. He walked away with as much dignity as he could muster, considering his anatomy had been so recently jarred. But he did not take the car home. No, there was much more to discover inside that hangar. He would wait until night and then take his time to explore the place fully. With this end in view, the chauffeur secreted himself in the outskirts of the orange grove, creeping underneath a tree with thick branches that nearly touched the ground. He could pick ripe fruit from where he lay and was well content to rest himself until night came. An hour later, Mr. Cumberford whirled by in his motor car, headed for the city. Tyler shook his fist at his enemy and swore effectively to relieve his feelings. Then he sank into a doze. The approaching chug of an engine aroused him. He found it was nearly dark, so he must have slept for some hours. And here was Cumberford, back with his car and speeding up the lane so swiftly that Tot could see only a cage-like affair occupying the rear section of the automobile. The chauffeur wondered what that could be, puzzling his brain for a solution to the problem. Even while considering the matter, Cumberford passed him again smoking his eternal cigarette and running the car more deliberately now toward the city. All right, mumbled the chauffeur. He's out of the way for the night anyhow, but he left the cage somewheres. What the blazes could he have had in it? He ate a few more oranges for his supper, smoked his pipe, snoozed again, and awoke to found it was nearly midnight. Good. Now's my time. I don't mind a bit of a wait if I get the goods in the end, and here's where I get them. Takes a pretty good man to outwit Tot Tyler. They'll all agree to that by and by. He crept down the lane and kept on the south side of the hedge until he came opposite the hangar, thus avoiding the house and grounds. The canvas top of the shed showed white in the moonlight, not twenty feet from where he stood and the chauffeur was pressing aside the thick hedge to find an opening when a deep bay followed by a growl smote his ears. He paused, his head thrust half through the foliage, his blood chilled with terror as there bounded from the hangar 
a huge bloodhound, its eyes glaring red in the dim light, its teeth barred menacingly. Tot thought he was done for, as he afterwards told Mr. Burton, when, with a jerk, the great beast stopped a yard from the hedge, and the clank of a chain showed it could come no further. Tyler caught his breath and broke from the hedge and sprinted down the lane at his best gait, followed by a succession of angry bays from the hound. Confound Cumberford, he muttered. The brute was in that cage, and he went to town to get it, so's to keep me out of the hangar. That's too I owe this guy, and I'll get even with him in time. Sure as fate. There was no car at this hour, so the discomfited chauffeur had to trudge seven miles back to the city, where he arrived at early dawn. The man was not in an amiable frame of mind when he brought Mr. Burton's automobile to the club where his master lived at nine o'clock a.m. As he drove the broker to the office, he related his news. Cumberford! Cumberford! cried Mr. Burton. Are you sure it was Cumberford? Yes, sir. I remember him well. Took him to your office at the bank, you know. The time you had some dealings with him. And he tried to tell me how to run the car. Me. I spotted him right away for a fresh guy from the east. And now he's kicked me out of Kane's anger and set a dog on me. Oh, yeah. I know, Cumberford. So do I, said Burton grimly. Tyler caught the tone. I'll do him yet, sir. Leave it to me. I couldn't get much of a pointer on Kane's aeroplane. Didn't have time, you know. But it looked like a rosebud. And I guess he's got something good. I'm going to find out. I'll take out a dose for the dog that'll put him to sleep in a wink. Then I'll go all over that thing, careful-like. Never mind the airship. I've found out what I wanted to know, said Mr. Burton. What? You have, sir? exclaimed the chauffeur, amazed. Yes, was the quiet reply. That is, if you're positive the man at Cain's was Cumberford. Sure, or I'll stake my life on it, sir. Then I'll follow the clue in my own way, said Mr. Burton, alighting from the car. The discovery made by Tyler necessitated a change in the proposed campaign. The broker entered his office and sat down at his desk and fell into one of his fits of deep abstraction. The new secretary, noting this, chewed her gum reflectively a moment and then began to read a novel, keeping the volume concealed behind her desk. If Cumberford was in the hangar, Mr. Burton mused, he has undertaken to back Kane's aeroplane, and I'm too late to get hold of the machine in the way I planned. I suppose the fool offered better terms than I did to blind those simple children, and so the Canes turned me down. Never mind, Cumberford has beaten me on two deals, but the third trick shall be mine. I must get hold of the designs of Kane's aeroplane in some way. Perhaps I may find them at the patent office. Then I'll regulate things so the boy's invention will prove a failure. The result ought to satisfy me. It would cause Cumberford serious loss, ruin young Kane, and bring Arissa to me for assistance. But Tyler can't manage the job. I must have a man more clever than he is. 
and direct the intrigue in person. The secretary read and chewed most of the day. When she quit work at five o'clock, Mr. Burton was still thinking. <laughs>